Before we get into today's episode, we'd like to start with a recent quote from Rachel Held Evans. Time for all of us to speak up. This isn't a joke anymore. To the cheers of thousands, Donald Trump has called for committing war crimes against women and children, for banning Muslims, including U.S. citizens, from entering the U.S., for shutting down mosques, and for tracking religious minorities with a database and possible ID badges. In addition, he shared false information from a white supremacist website to spread lies about African Americans and crime, and has called for the deportation of millions of immigrants. We've seen a Christian college president urge his students to take up arms and end those Muslims before they get here. And across the country, Muslims report that their mosques are being vandalized, and they are receiving death threats by the hour, and that women in head coverings are being harassed when they go out in public. Needy families fleeing terrorism in their own countries, who have spent years being vetted to receive refugee status in a safe home, are arriving to the U.S. Only, be, only to be turned away by state governors. The hysteria and xenophobia has gotten completely out of control, and it runs totally contrary to our country's commitment to religious freedom, and especially to the teachings of Jesus. If a pastor, family member, friend, or acquaintance expresses support for violent rhetoric against minorities, speak up. Call it out. It's not okay. We can stop wondering if we would have protested the anti-Semitism that led to the Holocaust. This is exactly how it begins. Now's the time to speak up and to act. Welcome to the Sandbox. Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. And this is episode 12, Us and Them. I find it simultaneously hard to believe and also not surprising that some of the political rhetoric is as violent as it is right now. You know, I've always wondered kind of how I would respond when when these types of things happen, big cultural shifts, um, particularly on such a large large scale and things that affect our country as massively as, as what's going on right now does. And between the events that have led to the Black Lives Matter movement over the last year and the way that Muslims are being treated these days, uh, just to name a couple of them, uh, it's about time really to say something. Absolutely. Uh, and the title of this episode is Us and Them. And it begs the question, who's us and, and who's them? Look, we've, we've been here before with all this political rhetoric that you're talking about, Chris. Insiders, outsider, those, those who are in power demonize those on the underside of power. Now, the common denominator is fear. You know, I think one of the best ways to challenge the way fear is driving our current conversation is by digging into what's really going on. There's a lot of people saying different things and, and not really a lot of us know what the actual facts are. And one of the largest concerns lately has been refugees, in particular Muslim refugees, and including those and maybe especially those from Syria. So we were curious, what exactly is the process for refugees coming into this country? And is our fear justified? I was, I was surfing my Facebook feed not too long ago, and I saw my brother had posted or reposted this, this thing by this guy named Scott Hicks. Apparently, he's a lawyer from Ohio. And I read it, and it was so helpful for me because I've been hearing a lot of the fear about refugees, and I didn't, I didn't think I was getting accurate information. And for the first time, I felt like I was getting some, some good information, some good stuff. And it turns out that this post uh, was this viral post that was shared over 330,000 times. And so we thought we needed to catch up with this guy. We needed to meet Scott Hicks. And so we gave him a call and uh, had a good conversation with him. We'd like to share that with you now. 
Scott is a lawyer in Lebanon, Ohio, and we'd like to welcome him to the Sandbox. Uh, welcome, Scott. Well, thank you for having me. Scott, you are a an immigration lawyer. Is that correct? I, I do. Yes, I'm an, a lawyer who uh, focuses his practice on immigration. I, I kind of have to say it that way because in Ohio, if I say it as an immigration lawyer, then they claim I'm claiming to be a specialist. So, okay. Well, okay. I'm not allowed. I'm not allowed to say those words, but other people do. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I'll just say it for you, because um, I'm in Minnesota and they can't touch me here. You know. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Tell me about your practice. Well, you know, I started, uh, actually when I was in law school, I started learning about immigration law uh, through a, it was an, an internship. And I, I, I've always had a, an interest in the world mm-hmm. and peoples from all over the world. I, I traveled uh, some when I was in college, um, I, and my degree ended up actually being in international studies. And so it was just kind of a natural fit. And when I, when I started working with this, this population, mm-hmm. it was like, yeah, this is, this is the kind of law that I would love to be able to, to practice as much as possible. And uh, it just kind of grew over time. Um, it, it, it's, it's an, my immigration is, is such a complex field. Um, it's only really rivaled by tax law and, um, and as I, and and the more you do, the more you realize, oh my gosh, there's exceptions and exceptions to exceptions. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and so, uh, and, and so I, I kind of fell into, uh, trial work and, and working with, uh, populations who were fleeing oppression, uh, fleeing persecution, um, really from you name the hot spot, I've probably had somebody that, that was scared to death to go back to that country. Sure. And asylum, asylum law and refugee law are really the same. It's just asylees are processed here, whereas refugees are processed outside the United States. But the, but the legal standard's the same for both. And so uh, over the years, I've, I've just, I can't even begin to tell you how many people I've represented um, from all over the world, and and it's it's a very difficult field, uh, and, and you and you have relationships that last for years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got right now I've got a case that's on appeal at the Sixth Circuit, and uh, I, I think I started with her probably almost ten years ago. Wow! And and that's not atypical uh, for immigration stuff. I mean, I've got people really that I started with back in 96, 97, when I first started practicing. And uh, they're still my clients, and I'm still doing stuff for them. So it's a very unique field in the sense that you get very close to to your clients, and you work with them for a very long time. And, and many of them, you know, uh, at least in the refugee and asylum field, uh, they have been through so much that it's just almost unfathomable to listen to these people. You know, they, they come from, it sounds like, like you said, hotspots around the world, and and then they are having a tough time finding anywhere where they can just legally be legally just so live. yeah. So what's the for someone who hasn't been able to enter the U.S. yet, and maybe that's their goal um, in fleeing from their from their home country? I mean, what's the reality for this person maybe day to day? Like, what are they facing and dealing with as yeah. they're trying to find their new their new home? Well, the reality is that. Um, if you look at wherever the 
if you look at, for example, your nightly news and you say, oh, my gosh, this country is blowing up. It's just imploding and, and horrible things are happening. Usually it takes about three to five years before you start seeing that population actually showing up in the U.S. And, um, and that's kind of what we're seeing with the Syrian thing. I mean, it, the, the, the Assad regime imploded and, and went, devolved into civil war. People started streaming out of the country. And now, several years later, we're just now starting that, that real process of, of resettling people. Um, and, for example, I've got a lot of clients who fled the, the Rwandan genocide. Mm-hmm. And I, we're still bringing refugees over from mm-hmm. back, you know, they fled in 94. And, and there's just, some of them are just now getting here. So it's a it's a long process, um, and it, it it of course starts with a catastrophic event in some country, um, and and people they basically flee to wherever they think is the closest refuge that they can get to initially, which is going to be the countries right next door, and uh, and then they basically depending on the host the host country's ability to absorb they usually end up just in camps uh and and that's when the unhcr the united nations high commissioner for refugees shows up and starts giving you you know you've seen the pictures of the tents and the water distribution and all that kind of stuff i mean they're there you know you've got other uh non-governmental organizations uh, that are there trying to give emergency aid and, and sustenance and of course you know, then eventually our dep- our Department of State begins to 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 help as well, evaluate who's there, and and it's it's a uh, it's just a process of who's really in what shape. We and and maybe only one percent. It's actually less than one percent of all refugees worldwide are considered good candidates for resettlement. Mm. So one of the things that I read uh, in this v- bit of a viral post that, uh, that came through Facebook that, that you had written was just how extensive it is. And so with in light of the national news right now around Syrian refugees, what is the process that takes them from I, I, I've left my home to I'm in the United States in a new home? There, there is so much that you detailed in there. I, I, is there a way that you could just show how extensive that process is? Because clearly it takes it takes years. Uh, but, right. But, it, it takes, I mean, our government right now is estimating it's 18 to 24 months for the processing. Now, in my experience, that's a pretty generous estimate in terms of on the short end. Yeah. Uh, and, and part of that's because we have, basically we have quotas. We, we really only take, traditionally, for the uh, last... I don't know, 10 years at least, we've only been taking in about 70,000 refugees a year. Well, you know, you've got several million people in, a, in an area, and granted only, you know, sm- only a small percentage of those are really actively being considered for resettlement, but still you can see that there's far more people that need the assistance than we're actually willing to, to allow to come. And so and, and one thing that many people really don't understand is that you can't just, okay, I'm going to leave Syria, I'm going to show up in a refugee camp, I'm going to knock on somebody's door and say, hey, I'm Syrian, I want to go to the United States. Because it doesn't work that way. Um, it's not the refugee's choice 
where they get to go. So they come in, they're registered, uh, and UNHCR, the NGOs, the State Department, they kind of, they have a triage system. Who are we really looking at? And the people we prioritize, uh, we've got three levels of priority. People that have just been through such horrific experiences and who have no viable long-term option to stay where they're at. Uh, that's a priority. The second priority are, are we've got a bunch of people, groups that over the years we have favored. Um, you know, so for example, uh, we still are are putting as a preference uh, former Soviet Union refugees or former uh, Vietnamese people who are now refugees. Uh, where there are certain African countries that we're prioritizing, and, and you know, Afghanistan. Iraq, those are going to be people groups that we're, we're prioritizing um, for consideration. And then the third category of priority are refugees who actually already have somebody in the United States uh, that's, uh, that's here legally. And mm-hmm. so if, if you've already got family here, then that would be a consideration in, in terms of, okay, maybe it would be appropriate to, bring, to reunite the family. So those are the people we're looking at in terms of general priorities and essentially they register they have to give information documents uh, they're interviewed uh, they go through a a bunch of different security checks Uh, essentially all of the the various federal entities that are involved with with terror identification and counterterrorism they're they're running the security checks on each individual and and if everything seems okay, at least initially, then they'll bring the people in for personal interviews. And we send people over from the Department of Homeland Security who've been specially trained in interviewing the, these population groups. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, there's the personal interview. Um, there's a, an example out of a, a, a refugee family that I think was relocated in the Philadelphia area. And she re, the, the mother related that they were in Turkey and they had multiple interviews and not only was it, they would interview the family together, but they would also take each individual, including the children, and they would separate them and interview each person separately cross-checking. just to kind of check and cross check yeah. what the story is. And, and what the mother related was that she said the questions they were asking were so detailed that it was obvious that they had done additional homework and investigation mm-hmm. because they were asking us questions that nobody who who hadn't done that and didn't know more of our background would never have been able to figure out how to ask. That's fascinating. So, I mean, these are, these are really detailed interviews, in particular for the Syrians, because we, we're subjecting them to heightened scrutiny already. Obviously, we have concerns. You know, we want to make sure who we're letting in. And so if they pass that aspect, and, that, and the other thing that, that also is going on is every time that a new piece of information comes up, they cycle back through the process. So, for example, if a new address pops up or a new relative or something like that, if it pops up, they're going to cycle all that back through the security checks. It may require another interview. And so all of this is going on, and if they 
if they get to that point, then they start to consider, okay, is this person actually eligible to come to the United States? And, and we've got an extensive array of, of disqualifying events in people's backgrounds where, you know, if somebody says the wrong thing or has done the wrong thing, okay, sorry, you don't qualify. And th- what many people don't understand is the, the predisposition is not yes. The right. predisposition is no. And so if, if the officer has any question at all, if he has any doubts at all, the answer is no. You know, we know, uh, mm-hmm. for example, a, a, a refugee family uh, from Burundi, Mm-hmm. And the guy was he was denied refugee resettlement because he he had a restaurant and he had provided a meal to a group that we considered uh, a terrorist organization. And and they we our government interpreted that as you were supporting terrorism. Mm-hmm. Now, I think most of us would kind of go, how, how is that supporting terrorists? Right. But that's the kind of standard that's being applied routinely all over uh, in this in this processing. And so if they pass the background checks, if they pass the, the kind of the, the life experience disqualifying checklist, mm. then they still have to pass a medical exam. And at that point, if they're cleared to go, then we contact the, the voluntary agencies here and basically say, okay, we've got some people that are ready to, that we're ready to send. You need to make arrangements. And uh, there's nine uh, resettlement agencies in the United States uh, who participate in that, and, and they basically they set everything up. I, for example, I know a uh, you know in, in Ohio, at least in my area, the only agency that that does this is is, is the Catholic Church. Okay. And and so. We've got some refugee populations um, that that they and they tend to try to keep groups more or less together. They don't want to just throw somebody out there all on their own, and they're the only uh, Rwandan family right. in the city, or they're the only Burmese family, or whatever. I mean, they just because they they realize that's a recipe for real problems. Sure. So they try to put them in and link them into a community uh, when they bring them over. So uh, that's that's kind of the the process in a nutshell. So not very extensive. Then. <laughs> no, I mean, no, no steps and no hurdles at all. <laughs> I keep hearing this, and I, I it's amazing to me that the dialogue is what it is around, uh, in particular, Syrian refugees. Given this extensive process, um, I mean, is it just because people don't know this? I mean, do you think that it's it really is just this this fear of the unknown? Um, I don't know how much how much you can maybe say, but I mean, is there something that we can be doing to be changing that? Is there something that we can be doing to kind of alter the opinion of, of really what's going on? To be honest, I, I don't know. Um, I, I wrote that piece uh, on my Facebook post, and it, it was in response to a friend of ours. And I had, I had posted a, a, a link to an article in the Cincinnati newspaper uh, about the first Syrian refugee family that was resettled here in, in the Cincinnati area. And she had commented on something, and then one of her friends asked a question, and she said, okay, well, I'm waiting for Scott to, to answer that because I'm sure when he weighs in, he'll be able to tell us some of this stuff. And so I, that's kind of what got this started. 
I, and I, I posted a brief answer to her, and then I thought, you know, I really ought to do a, a better explanation. And so I, I wrote that piece that I did, mm-hmm. which, you know, I, I looked at it and thought, oh my gosh, I mean, this is long, legal, dry, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, 330,000 shares later, you're oh, like, geez. wow, what just happened here? <laughs> and uh, it, so I think people... I think people do want information, and, and part of the problem is people don't know what to believe. Mm-hmm. And so you've got you've got politicians. I call it the silly season. You know, we're going into a presidential election cycle. You know, and, and politicians say things that you can't summarize immigration policy in a sentence unless you're a politician, in which <laughs> case it becomes something that you're throwing to your base, mm-hmm. and and. You, you know, ever since 9-11, I feel like we as a country have been driven by the cycles of fear. You know, fear yeah. seems to be what dominates our politics and, and dominates a lot of our policies. And, and I think that people, they, they, they're afraid, they don't know what the real facts are, and they don't know who to trust. And, and you know, if you turn on the talk radio, you turn on the news, what you hear is is not extensive and, and it tends to be just, you know, oh my gosh, the world, you know, we have to be careful about all this and, and 